stretch like strands of a thin net, cast by men over the peninsula to ensnare untamed things that linger yet among the trees, to sate the wind's hungry moan. There are wolves here, I imagine, and moose, but no men, no men for long miles. And every few hundred yards the pavement is stained, mottled brown from old kills, or spattered of vibrant red, blood from wolf, or moose, or man. The bodies are nowhere now, track and trace obscured by gusting and the north's white teeth. Deep in the forest, a pine bough exhales piled snow like hot breath in the frost. Powder crashes into powder with a muffled thump, and there is stillness. In the long houses of the Ojibwe it is whispered that as it feeds, it grows. who beware the Wendigo. And I'm your host, your solo practitioner, your witch doctor on duty, Travis Maxwell Boone. It's been a while since you've heard from any one of us here at the nightclub, and I humbly apologize. Thank you very much for your patience. I know you've been promised something that would drop into your subscription feed at least twice a month. Well, I'm a little late. Work has been hell. It's been a pain to get things done, but it's finally here. And I'm going to maintain this level of output. Let us know what you guys thought about the last episode. Uh, in order to do that, you have to join us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Radio Public, or visit our official website, thenightclub.fireside.fm for other podcatchers, our blog, and direct from the void downloads and streaming. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Nightclub Podcast and reach out and touch pure evil using our email, thenightclubpodcast at gmail.com. Whatever you subscribe to, give us that five-pointed pentagram rating. Write up a review and send it in. I don't always get to check all of the apps that we're on, all of the different podcatchers because... We're on so fucking many of them, I don't really have time to do that. But if you write a review and you want it right on the show, send it in to me. Or write up an email and send that in. Thoughts on a film that we've covered. Thoughts on a topic we've talked about. Anything you want to say, send us an email. Still haven't gotten a single fucking one of those. And I know you guys are listening. The numbers are, you know, they're good. I know people are out there. <laughs> Hit us up. Okay. With that out of the way, tonight's episode is going to be about something sort of quasi-cryptid. Uh, 
Um, it's, it's something I've been interested in for many, many years, going back to a film I saw when I was a teenager. I'm not going to cover that film tonight, however. Uh, later on, we're going to talk about something that a buddy of mine many years ago said I needed to see because it was an underrated cult classic hidden gem. Well, I finally watched it last year, and uh, I did a double feature with uh, Bone Tomahawk and the film that we're covering tonight, Ravenous. That, as a double feature, is fucking incredible. Two Western frontier horror films, both involving cannibalism, uh, one by way of just straight-up people-eating people, and the film we're going to talk about tonight, featuring the quasi-cryptid I'm about to dive into... So, here we go. The Coven has already covered a few witchy films, including Ari Aster's Hereditary and Robert Eggers's The Witch, and since one member of the Coven loves werewolves as much as I do, I'm putting those raging beasts on the back burner. Tonight, however... I will be talking about another creature of the night that I'm totally consumed with. The Wendigo. A horrific monster or a hungry ghost? Perhaps they wield power and influence from atop a societal and cultural pyramid. Whichever form they come in, the Wendigo all share an unyielding hunger that can never be satiated. To cross the path of a Wendigo is to be consumed or transformed into the flesh of monsters. Tales of the Wendigo originate with the First Nations Algonquin tribes of Nova Scotia and other northern regions where my Cajun ancestors are originally from. The Cree, the Innu, and several other tribes first associated the Wendigo with elements of the winter months, such as the dark, cold forest of the north and the very stark possibility of starvation. Many of these peoples described the Wendigo as a giant towering over men, which grew larger with every person it consumed and gained the strength of said person, which in turn expanded its appetite so it could never be full. Scholar Basil H. Johnson describes the Wendigo as a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave, emaciated, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into its sockets. What lips it had are tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from separation of the flesh. The Wendigo give off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. The fears of these natives living in the harsh, unforgiving northern region of America birthed the legend of this horrid creature. The Wendigo is as unstoppable as its hunger is insatiable. Once this malevolent beast begins hunting its prey, a terrible fever sets in for the victim. They experience strange smells, have terrifying nightmares, and slowly go insane. Finally, the irresistible urge to run into the wilderness overtakes them. 
This same fever is akin to what is known as Wendigo psychosis, a disputed medical condition that evokes the act of cannibalism or the desire to eat human meat. This version of the Wendigo isn't that of a towering monstrosity, but an evil spirit that possesses a human being and drives them to bloodlust and consumption. Two accounts of note are as follows. Swift Runner was a Cree Indian who lived during the last century in what is now central Alberta, Canada. His background seemed not unusual. As a young man, he received a solid, useful Cree education. He married and had a family of six children, traded with the Hudson Bay Company, and in 1875, he served as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. But Swift Runner's life ended in tragedy and notoriety. During the winter of 1878 to 1879, a time of starvation and misery for the Cree people, he became possessed by the Wendigo. He murdered his wife and family, cooked and ate their flesh. Eventually, he was arrested, brought to trial, and in December 1897, hanged at Fort Saskatchewan. During that winter, a Wendigo ate Swift Runner's family. He was a Cree hunter and trapper from the country north of Fort Edmonton. He was a big man, over six feet tall and well-liked. He was mild and trustworthy, a considerate husband, and very fond of his children. A little too fond of his children, as events proved. All of these traits endeared him to the people around him and to the traders of the Hudson's Bay Company. But this was not enough to ally suspicion when he returned from his winter camp in the spring of 1879 without his wife and family. When he could not give a satisfactory account of their whereabouts, his in-laws became worried. They decided to tell the Northwest Mounted Police, who had then been in the West for just five years. Inspector Gannon was given the task of investigating Swift Runner's behavior. He and a small party of policemen accordingly trekked out into the trapper's camp. Swift Runner obligingly showed the mounted police a small grave near his camp. He explained that one of his boys had died and was buried there. Gannon and his detachment opened the grave and found the bones undisturbed. That, however, did not explain the human bones scattered around the encampment. Gannon produced a skull, which Swift Runner willingly told him was that of his wife. Without much prodding, Swift Runner revealed what had happened to the rest of his family. At first, he became haunted by dreams. A Wendigo spirit called on top to consume the people around him. The spirit crept through his mind, gradually taking control. Finally, he was the Wendigo and Swift Runner no longer. Then the Wendigo killed and ate Swift Runner's wife. With this accomplished, the Wendigo forced one of the boys to kill and butcher his younger brother. While enjoying this grisly repast, the spirit hung Swift Runner's infant by the neck from a lodge pole and tugged at the baby's dangling feet. It was later shown that he had also done away with Swift Runner's brother and his mother-in-law, though he acknowledged that she had been a bit tough. The revolted mounted police party hauled Swift Runner and the mutilated evidence back to Fort Saskatchewan. 
The trial began on August 8, 1879. The judge and jury did not view the Wendigo idea in the same light as the Cree. They saw Swift Runner as a murderer, and the trapper made no attempt to hide his guilt. Magistrate Richardson quickly sentenced him to be hanged. The sentence presented a problem. The police had never before conducted an execution. Although the Hudson's Bay Company had once hanged an employee for murder, this was, for all intents and purposes, the first formal execution in Western Canada. Staff Sergeant Fred Bagley was put in charge of the arrangements. A gallows was erected within the fort enclosure at Fort Saskatchewan, and an old army pensioner named Rogers was made hangman. On the appointed morning, a bitterly cold December 20th, Swift Runner was led to the scaffold. Standing over the trap, the unrepented cannibal was given the opportunity to address the lower crowd that had gathered. He openly acknowledged his guilt and thanked his jailers for their kindness, then berated his guard for making him wait in the cold. Nevertheless, the mounted police must have accomplished their first execution well enough. A more experienced spectator, a Californian 49er named Jim Reed, commented, That's the prettiest hanging I ever seen. And it's the 29th. Our next account is of Jack Fiddler, also known as He Who Stands in the Southern Sky. He was an Ogema, I hope I'm saying that right, a chief and shaman among the Sukkerdotum, among the Anishinaabe people in what is now northwestern Ontario. His arrest in 1906 for the alleged murder of a Wendigo and his suicide before trial marked the beginning of the imposition of Canadian law on the Sucker people. He was born in the forest of the Upper Servan River, near Sandy Lake, Deer Lake, and North Spirit Lake in the 1830s or 1840s. Jack Fiddler's father, a mysterious figure from the East who was adopted into the Sucker clan during the previous century, was a respected political and spiritual leader. The Suckers were not the only group in the area, as they were allied with the Pelican and Sturgeon clans, and had contact with the Cranes as well. Jack grew up during a period of difficulty. Overtrapping for the fur trade of the previous centuries had left the boreal forest of northern Ontario depleted of animals. With declining numbers of furs, lower demand abroad, and more opportunities in the west, the Hudson's Bay Company abandoned their post at Island Lake for much of the early 19th century, forcing the suckers to travel to Big Trout Lake or Little Grand Rapids for trade. As a young man, Jack Filler likely worked on the York boats, bringing furs to the York factory. And by the 1860s, the number of fur-bearing animals increased enough for the Hudson Bay Company to reopen the Island Lake Post, and Jack emerged as one of the leaders for the Sucker people. At his brief visits at the Post, he developed the ability to fiddle and built quality instruments. The traders there frequently gave English nicknames to individual natives and designated whole clans by the name of the primary leader or an arbitrary English surname. Thus, the Sturgeons were known to traders by the surname Ray or Mamakisik. The Pelicans, after their leader, Mikis, and the Cranes, after their leaders, Kakegamik and Kakeptum. Jack and his brother became Jack and Joseph Fiddler, and the Suckers often appear in the records as the Fiddler tribe. Jack took five wives and had 13 children, 
and polygamy was common, out of necessity for no other reason as young men died often in the dangers of the times. And here's where things take a turn for old Jack. Unlike his father before him, Jack Fiddler became a famous shaman for his alleged ability to conjure animals and protect his people from spells. Most importantly to the people of the region, he could allegedly successfully defeat the Wendigo, a cannibalistic spirit that would possess people during all too frequent bouts of famine and disease. In his life, Jack Fiddler claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos. Apparently, some were set against him by his own people and enemies of the shaman, and others were members of his own band who were taken with an insatiable, incurable desire to eat human flesh. In the latter case, was usually asked by family members to kill a very sick loved one before they turned Wendigo. In some cases, the Wendigo itself would ask to be euthanized according to the necessary rites. Fiddler's own brother, Peter Fleet, was killed after turning Wendigo when the food ran out on a trading expedition. Hudson's Bay Company traders and Cree and missionaries were all aware of the Wendigo legend, though they often explained it as a mental illness or superstition. Regardless, several incidents of people turning Wendigo and eating human flesh are documented in the records of the company. Jack Fiddler's reputation also grew among these groups, and he was approached multiple times by Cree ministers at Island Lake and asked to bring Christianity to the people. Though he respectfully heard their request, Fiddler did not convert. And by the beginning of the 20th century, the Sucker people were among the only indigenous people in North America living in a traditional manner with almost no government imposition on legal and religious matters. In early 1907, two members of the Northwest Mounted Police visiting Island Lake heard of Jack Fiddler's power against the Wendigo from Norman Ray, an in-law of the Fiddlers. Seeking to introduce Canadian law to the North, the Mounties went to the Sucker camp at Deer Lake and arrested Jack and Joseph Fiddler for murder. Before leaving, they took an eyewitness and declared that each man must give up any extra wives. For most of the sucker people, the Mounties were the first whites they had ever seen. The elderly brothers were charged with murdering Joseph's daughter-in-law the year before. They were held at Norway House to await trial. Meanwhile, newspapers across Canada picked up the story and printed sensational headlines of murder and devil worship. Across the country, people demanded convictions while the police conducted a trial and saw an opportunity for fame and advancement. On September 30th, Jack Fiddler escaped captivity during a walk outside. He hanged himself nearby and was found dead later in the day. Joseph Fiddler still went to trial, however. Angus Ray, the eyewitness, testified that Joseph's daughter-in-law was killed while in deep pain and incurably sick according to the custom of the people who were not aware of Canadian law. Pressed on the Wendigo issue, Ray admitted that it was a belief among his people that Jack and Joseph were the ones who were usually asked to euthanize the very sick and prevent Wendigos. Despite some unreliable testimony from Ray and the pleas of missionaries and Hudson's Bay Company traders, Joseph was convicted and sentenced to death. Further appeals secured his release but the order came three days after his death in 1909. Without their most prominent leaders, the people of the Upper Seven Rivers had no choice but to accept government rule. Robert Fiddler, Jack's son, signed an addition to Treaty 5 as chief of the Deer Lake Band in 1910 
and chose to settle at Deer Lake. Later, several families, including the Fiddlers, moved to Sandy Lake and became part of Treaty 9. Today, most of the descendants of Jack Fiddler live in the Sandy Lake First Nation, with others at the Deer Lake First Nation and North Spirit Lake First Nation in Ontario. The spirit of the lonely places are essentially a warning against greed and selfishness. Its origins were meant to ward off cannibalism amongst the tribes that had to survive the deadly winters of the north when food was scarce. As a metaphor, the Wendigo is the worst parts of the individual and the society. We find ourselves in the time of the Wendigo. Rampant gluttony, corporate greed, and as a byproduct, a more than rugged individualism that takes compassion out of the equation for certain swaths of people. The concept of the Wendigo is one of excessive greed, destruction, and disharmony. From the overreaching clause of colonialism to the runaway idea of national identity, despite knowing that deep down, we are all one and in this together during our short time here. We can displace one another, rob the land of resources, construct grand schemes that treat life as a race to chase, but never obtain. This is the darker nature of mankind and the true essence of the Wendigo. What the Algonquin feared most has spread in leeches to this day. We need not be afraid of the stag-skulled demon deep in the heart of the icy woods, but rather the hunger born of uncertain fears in the hearts of all mankind. We are the Wendigo. This evening's Midnight Ritual will feature the spirit of the Wendigo and our total fear of death. What we are willing to do to avoid it and what we become when we accept Dark Meeting Darkest. If you have not seen 1999's Ravenous, cry off now. You bastards! Why are you torturing me like this? Why? <laughs> is a 1999 western horror film taking place in 1840s California. The film was directed by Antonia Bird and stars Guy Pierce as Captain John Boyd, Robert Carlyle as F.W. Calhoun, David Arquette as Private Cleves, Jeremy Davies as Private Toffler, Jeffrey Jones as Colonel Hart, John Spencers as General Slauson, Stephen Spinella as Major Knox, and Neil McDonough as Reich. Written by Ted Griffin of Ocean's Eleven and Matchstick Men, the score was composed by Michael Nyman and Damon Alborn of Blur and Gorillaz fame. Filming took place on location in the Tatra Mountains, a natural border between Slovakia and Poland, as well as Durango, Mexico. Although the production was notoriously troubled, and several folks sat in the director's chair, 
It was eventually thanks to Robert Carlyle suggesting Antonia Byrd, his frequent collaborator, and the film had its director. She took a film loosely based on the Donner Party and added a darkly comedic edge to it. The budget is estimated to be around $12 million, and sadly, it made back only $2 million at the box office. But over time, this wildly original movie has amassed a cult following and needs to be seen to be believed. Let us feast on the film Ravenous. The film opens with two quotes. He that fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. Frederick Nietzsche. And the other quote, Eat me. Anonymous. During the Mexican-American War in 1847, Captain John Boyd is being honored as a war hero for infiltrating the enemy's ranks and capturing some of their top brass. This honor takes place at a long table with many soldiers of high ranks and commences with a steak dinner. A chaotic symphony of forks and knives scraping the plates ensues, the men greedily and thoughtlessly tearing into the meat, chewing and gnashing sloppily, and set out before them as Boyd attempts to cut into the blood-soaked slab before memories of the blood running down his own throat from a pile of dead bodies stacked atop him causes him to flee the dinner and vomit as the title card hits the screen. Ravenous. A superior officer, General Slauson, who had been observing Boyd's growing anxieties, pulls him aside to reveal the truth that he and Boyd both know. Boyd is no hero. He is swiftly transferred to Fort Spencer in California, a harsh mountainous region with heavily wooded valleys. He is basically exiled. And Fort Spencer, upon arrival, is seemingly run down and barely held together, rustic yet dilapidated. He meets his commanding officer, Colonel Hart, a learned man with many books and fond of different languages who explains that Fort Spencer is a way station, but during the winter months not many travelers pass through, so they maintain a skeleton crew at this time. The garrison is made up of Private Toffler, a priest, Major Knox, the always inebriated medic on staff, former veterinarian, Private Reich, a hardcore soldier that screams while bathing in freezing rivers, Martha and George, a brother-sister duo of Native Americans, and lastly, Private Cleves, a dullard that imbibes in peyote and displays supreme stupidity. At supper that evening, a soft-spoken toffler attempts to give the Lord's Prayer, but is immediately ignored as everyone digs in without prompt or patience for his saying of grace. The next morning, while gazing out across the snow-covered landscape, Boyd recalls how he captured the enemy's leadership. He played dead like a possum, and was carted off with all the dead soldiers. While laying at the bottom of his piled-on brethren, Boyd felt something start to change after ingesting the blood of his former commander. He gained a new resolve and strength, pulling himself out from the deceased heap 
and effortlessly breaking one of the enemy's necks before pulling a gun on a hostage and taking control of the situation. He had confessed all of this, though, and was spared being executed for exile. The guilt is interrupted when Cleves and Martha are being instructed by Colonel Hart as to what provisions they need to procure on their outing. Salt, meat, beans, coffee, oil, bacon, and flour. Hart explicitly states to Martha that Cleves is to be on a leash. No loco weed, no peyote, no women. They are expected back within three days' time and venture off, with Cleves groveling and begging to at least get to have a woman, to which Martha says, no women. Later that evening, Hart asks Boyd what he received his medal for, to which Boyd responds, cowardice. They then partake of some of the passed-out Knox's bourbon with a toast to escapism, and Toffler is swiftly dismissed again while trying to write a hymn on the organ they have there at camp. Hart muses about escape, saying men try to escape the world but often end up someplace worse. It's at that very moment they spot a man outside their quarters through the window. The soldiers investigate and find the man unconscious. They bring him inside and revive him with hot water, and although Toffler is sent to rouse Knox, their only medic, he is too drunk, barely awakens, and falls immediately back asleep. Once the stranger comes to his senses, he says his name is F.W. Calhoun, and gives them all a story. He and a group of several travelers were being guided through the Sierra Nevadas by Colonel Ives, a man he says is detestable. And this all ends in disaster. Storms forced them to take shelter in a cave. And eventually they had to eat their oxen. And then their horses. And finally they turned to eating their own belts, shoes, and whatever roots they could dig up. He woefully admits that one day while gathering firewood, one of their party died from malnourishment. And when he returned... He smelled them cooking his legs, and he says the smell of cooking meat was irresistible. He thanked the Lord. After the horror began, their hunger grew savage, in particular Colonel Ives. They began killing other members of the party and ate them. Calhoun then fled when it was just he and Colonel Ives and one other woman left. With this information, Colonel Hart decides to find the cave and rescue the woman. But before they can leave, George tells them of the Wendigo, with heart translating. It's an old Indian myth from the north. A man eats another's flesh. He steals his strength, essence, his spirit, and his hunger becomes craven, insatiable. The more he eats, the more he wants to. The more he eats, the stronger he becomes. Hart asks George if people still do that, and George says, the white man eats the body of Jesus Christ every Sunday. Hart, Boyd, Wright, George, Toffler, and Calhoun leave the fort and trek out into the wilderness that will take several days. Along the way, Toffler writes his hymn, yet also finds a bone in the mountains and falls down a great deal of craggly rocks injuring himself. While sleeping that night at their camp, Calhoun and Toffler have a tussle in the dark 
alarming the other soldiers who quickly come in and light a lantern to see Calhoun with blood around his lips and Toffler whispering, then finally screaming, He was licking me! Calhoun claims he was having a nightmare and insists on being restrained. The company does so and continue on, George muttering Wendigo any time he looks at Calhoun. They finally come to the cave and Calhoun becomes erratic and fearful. Hart sends Reich and Boyd in to investigate while George, Toffler, and himself monitor the distraught Calhoun outside. Deep in the bowels of the cave, Boyd and Reich discover a trail of blood leading to a pit in the cave floor. Reich descends down and tallies up a number of freshly stripped skeletons, including the garments of Colonel Ives, meaning there has to be only one sole survivor, Calhoun. Outside, Calhoun displays more insane behavior and begins to dig frantically and ferociously in the soil with his bare hands, while Hart is calling out for his soldiers in the cave. They are also trying to exit and warning that they must kill Calhoun, but Calhoun pulls a knife from his earthen hiding place and stabs Hart. George hurls a tomahawk at the offensive Calhoun, but only manages to strike Colonel Hart in the back. Calhoun pulls Hart's pistol and shoots George dead. He then looks to Toffler and says, Run, and a chase ensues. Boyd and Wright discover the wounded and the dead and decide that they are going to kill the bastard. In the midst of their pursuit, they find a gutted Toffler, and while tracking the trickster of this now apparent trap, Reich is stabbed by Calhoun and falls off of a cliff. Boyd shoots him without hesitation with a rifle, seemingly killing the man. But slowly Calhoun rises, laughing, and is unharmed. He corners Boyd at the edge of a cliff, and instead of facing the unkillable Wendigo, Boyd jumps. He crashes through a bunch of tree branches and rolls down a hillside into a covering where Reich is dangling. And after a brief struggle, Reich dies and Calhoun stalks around their covering, sniffing, able to smell their blood, but then leaves. As several days and nights go by by way of the moon waxing and waning, Boyd sets his broken leg, Cleves and Martha return to Fort Spencer, Calhoun feasts on the bodies of his victims, and Boyd staves off hunger by eating twigs and roots. As the darkness and the cold envelop a weary Boyd, he finally gives in to the hunger, the drops of blood that gave him the strength to escape. He eats Reich and emerges from his assumed grave nearly healed. He hobbles back to Fort Spencer through the driving snow and is taken in by Cleves, Martha, and Knox. Desperate for a solution, Boyd begs Martha to help him stop the spirit of the Wendigo, but she says the only way to stop it now is that he himself must die. General Slauson, the man that had transferred Boyd to the fort, comes to investigate what happened, and persuades Boyd to drop his Wendigo story in favor of claiming that he got lost. Instead of Colonel Hart, a new commanding officer is assigned to the fort, and in walks Calhoun, introduced as Colonel Ives. Boyd fervently claims Ives is Calhoun, and that Knox could attest to this claim. Ives disrobes and 
shows he has no signs of bullet wounds from Boyd's rifle. General Slauson and his men leave, with Ives now in charge of Fort Spencer, thanks to the drunken Major Knox not being able to recall what Calhoun looked like. It isn't long after they depart that Boyd fantasizes about attacking and eating Cleves, but it is Ives that is to be feared. One night, Ives and Boyd have an encounter where Ives details his bout with tuberculosis and what led him to his near-death experience. He says he was told of a Wendigo legend by a native scout, and he had to try it for himself as a last resort. He ate the scout, and then five others. He became virile and more alive than ever before. He confronts Boyd on his hesitancy and calls his morals for rejecting the Wendigo cowardly. Ives cuts his own hand open, spilling the blood in, a, in an attempt to lure Boyd in and convert him, but it doesn't work. Boyd pins Ives and holds a blade to his neck, but Martha and Knox come to Ives' rescue and decide to place Boyd under arrest. Knox is clearly intoxicated, and he orders Martha to find Cleves so they can take Boyd into custody. She, however, cannot find the ne'er-do-well, and while bandaging Ives, Knox is told all of the horses have been killed, and it is at this moment blood begins dripping down onto Martha's face, and above her they find Cleves mutilated on the roof. Believing Boyd responsible, Knox beats him unconscious, first for Cleves and then for his horses. The next morning, Martha is tasked with making contact with General Slauson to have Boyd moved to a prison. With Boyd in chains and Martha gone, Ives begins cooking a large pot of stew. And when Knox offers help, Ives says not to worry, he'll eventually contribute. Moments later, Knox is slain by his own sword at the hands of Colonel Hart. It is revealed that Hart murdered Cleves and the horses, and that Ives had kept him alive with the bodies of Toffler, George, and Reich, expanding his Wendigo clan. Ives explains to Boyd that once winter passes, he plans on turning the way station of Fort Spencer into a cannibal's playground. A buffet of gold-hungry Americans will trickle through in the western expansion of Manifest Destiny, and they, along with the soon-to-be-recruited General Slauson, will kill and devour only the choicest of meats. We just need a home, and this country is seeking to be whole, stretching out its arms and consuming all it can, and we merely follow. Boyd is resistant to join the clan of Wendigos, so Ives fatally stabs him. Hart presents him with a bowl of stew a la Knox in the hopes Boyd will partake and see the light. Acquiescence is courage according to Ives, after all. When left to famine or feast, a dying Boyd succumbs and eats of the human stew. Some time later, Hart decides to trust Boyd and let him out of his holding cell. He laments the loss of his many books that he can no longer study and then he and his reluctant prisoner wax poetic on the nature of happiness and truth and the disparities between, while Ives spies the arrival of Martha, Slauson, and another soldier. After their philosophical talk, Hart releases Boyd and begs to be killed in order to escape the vicious circle, and Boyd acquiesces, stabbing Hart in the neck. A final showdown at Fort Spencer ensues, with Ives and Boyd squaring off 
Wendigo versus anti-Wendigo. The spirit of the evil forest demon begins playing tricks with Boyd's mind as he searches the fort for Ives. Major Knox has sword in hand. After rummaging through the stables, Boyd is attacked outside, but pierces Ives with a pitchfork, and then he himself is stabbed repeatedly in the struggle. Both men, now wounded, fight over control of Hart's dagger, with Boyd having it implanted in his back. The roof above them collapses in and temporarily pins Ives, but he soon gives chase and finds Boyd in the stable. Ives pulls the dagger from Boyd's back, but then both men fall onto a bear trap. Boyd shoving Ives' head onto the mechanism, setting the snare off, and it crushes and pierces them both down. Ives says, If you die first, I'm definitely going to eat you. But if I die first... What are you going to do? Bon appetit. Ives does indeed die first. Boyd, resisting the spirit of the Wendigo, dies shortly thereafter with Martha looking on. But inside the living quarters, General Slauson is sniffing the stew and eventually takes a bite of stew a la Knox. The vicious cycle of consumption and greed doomed to repeat itself. there you have it, a fictional account of a Wendigo possessing men in their most pressing of times. The themes of guilt, manifest destiny, a fear of death, all of these are worn on the sleeve of this film, and it's very eccentric for the type of movie it is, a dark comedy with a fair amount of gore and an extremely amazing soundtrack, most of which you've heard during tonight's Midnight Ritual. I highly recommend watching this film if you haven't because my synopsis does not do it justice for a viewing. And before or after you watch Ravenous, I implore you to watch 2015's Bone Tomahawk. I've said it before and I'll say it till my grave, it makes a hell of a double feature. I'm glad I got an episode out about Wendigos and I think I'm going to continue on with uh, my solo practicing podcast with a series of cryptid episodes. If you like this type of coverage, please go ahead and let me know. I've asked for the emails. Send them in. I want to read them out on the show. And hopefully the next episode will be a gathering of the coven. I've been your witch doctor, Travis Maxwell Boone. Stay spooky, Wendigo bitches.
keep a monsters inside of my chest But I don't let him fool me Don't let me rest I keep engaged in the prison of my pain Should I never let them say Control 